Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day and welcome to AusBiz. This is The Call. 10 stocks. Picked by you, two experts, one hour. It is Tuesday, the 7th of December. I'm Andrew Gagan. Great to have you join us. All right, our guests today, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool and Mark Morland from Team Invest. Guys, good afternoon to you, Mark. Uh, now, look, I think you've just got back from the States, haven't you? You've been over there for a while. Tell us how, how easy or perhaps difficult it is to travel internationally at the moment. Um, it, well, actually, I was away for three months. Flying back to Australia was um, yeah, a bit of mucking around on that end. But once I got here, we got off the plane. And I was through immigration and picked my bags up and out the door in under 10 minutes. So I'm in, I'm in 72 hours um, home quarantine, yep. which I've heard nothing from anybody and nothing was ever said at the airport. So I don't know, I don't know how serious it is, but I'm, 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 I'm braving it. All right. Well, that, that augurs well for the future. I like the sound of that. Um, Scott, I'm still dreaming about going travelling at this point. Just getting across the state border is uh, enough of a challenge for Australians, I reckon. Hey, of course, um, we're looking at the market at the moment. Uh, extreme volatility. Scott, how, how are you seeing that play out at the moment? Because, of, of course, a lot of this has been not just inflation, but also about Omicron, the latest variant. Although the news looks as though it's getting a little better on that front. Yeah, Andrew, it does. Look, I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist, so I'll, uh, I'll only briefly touch on the health consequences. But you're right. The, the good news is the market is seeing positive commentary come out about the fact maybe it's more transmissible, but maybe it's also less severe in terms of its symptoms than Delta, uh, maybe even the other variants. So that's a, that's a real positive, And I think it's given both uh, state and federal politicians and regulators enough confidence to believe they can continue with the opening plans. And as you say, that's a really important one for confidence. It's a challenging market to be in for a couple of reasons, mate, because we're dealing with the local things like confidence, like border reopening. Mark can tell us more about the US, of course, but he's just been there and they haven't had anywhere like the sort of lockdowns or restrictions that we've had. And so that is kind of a very local impact. The broader impact on confidence, I guess, about the variant itself the ongoing issues with supply chain, the questions about inflation, interest rates, they are definitely global questions. Um, I think the market really trying to work out how expensive money is. You know, the free money stocks, the high growth stocks that have been able to say, well, we can go and get cash. There'll be people throwing money at them because money is so cheap right now. Why wouldn't you try and do something else with it other than leave it in the bank or buy treasury bonds? That's going to start to change a little bit. It's starting to change already in the US, as we know. Uh, the Fed talking about in, in tapering more quickly, putting rates up more soon, more quickly as well or sooner. Um, the Australian Federal sorry, Reserve Bank of Australia likely to do the same. The bond market thinks uh, six to 12 months before the RBA plans to do it. So that's kind of, I think, the, the, still the big one. The Omicron stuff mm -hmm. is around. I think to some degree we've put it largely behind us. One eye on the fact that maybe there's some bad news to come, and I guess that's what the jitters are about. But that question still of how much do we pay for money and how much do things start costing moving forward, that I think is the big one for markets over the next 12 months. Yeah, Mark, just briefly, have you noticed any distinct differences between the states and Australia, certainly as far as the inflation 
picture and and I guess you know drilling down further just as far as those supply chain bottlenecks are concerned um, yeah I think um, I agree with what, what Scott said I think in the US yeah, everyone's debating you know the whether the, whether this whether inflation's uh, transient or it's going to be in, uh, embedded you know, the inflation is is actually quite high over there and if you actually look at it on all the key metrics like food petrol you know I think fuel's gone up hundred percent you know we, we could see it in going to the supermarket. It was, it was visibly, it used to be always cheaper over there than here. And, and now I'd say it's about the same for uh, food and restaurants and stuff like that. Plus, you have a lot of on costs over there, like uh, state taxes and tips and all the rest of it. So it actually, means it's actually more expensive. But um, I think the, the question is, when we talk about rates going up or tapering um, and uh, changing the way that the level of stimulus it's how much they're going to go up. I can't see the rates going up more than a, maybe a percent or something at the high end. Personally, that's my view. So it's not like we're going to go back to seven or eight percent. The government, the, the federal won't allow it to happen because yeah, it would be a disaster economically. They just can't do it. So they've got to keep it down. So I'm in the camp that says that the market will continue to uh, grow, as in PEs growing, because there's no other investment around really, you know, apart from uh, buying um, assets and incoming income earning shares. Um, and with a lot of more volatility. So the, I think the, the volatility is not going to go away. Yep. But I, I think uh, I'm quite confident in my own mind that um, prices are likely to be a lot higher in the next year or two. All right, guys, let's uh, get stuck into it. And our stock of the day is Magellan Financial Group, ticket code Ooh. MFG. Now, it is out today with some news changes to its C-suite chief executive and director Brett Cairns resigning from his position which he says is for personal reasons, and current CFO, Kristen uh, Morton, is set to step in as interim chief while the search is underway for a permanent replacement. Uh, Mark is responding to that news this morning with shares receiving a healthy whack. Uh, as we can see, down close to 4%. In fact, it's a touching 52-week lows. And yesterday, Magellan reported total funds under management of more than $116 million. Scott... Uh, as I mentioned, 52-week low does appear, you know, certainly the, the assessment is it does have some underperforming funds. How are you looking at this and, and obviously with that news today? Mm. Andrew, I, look, it's a really, really tough one. It's hard to know in a business like Magellan with some very vocal, very prominent and frankly very accomplished uh, founders who are still around the business, how important the current CEO, now former CEO is to the business itself. And it's always hard as well to pass the announcements that ASX companies made. No CEO ever leaves because they had an intractable argument with the board or, you know, um, the chairmen or so-and-so. There's always personal reasons, family reasons, spend more time with the kids, uh, the politicians, uh, playbook, of course. So it's really hard to know exactly what's going on inside Magellan. And you're either, you're either faced to either say, well, I don't know, so I'm not going to touch it, which is absolutely possible and, and not, a, not a terrible decision to make. Or you say, hey, I'm going to look at the fundamentals of the business. So separate, you know, personalities aside, what does this business look like? How how is it valued? How's it performing? All that kind of stuff. I think with the excuse me, I think with the um, the challenge we've got around the uh, the underperforming business is is the key one. They took some write downs on some investments, including in Baron Joey and others. I think they seem to be transitory. Quite honestly, if you've got a business trading on thirteen times earnings, when there's some transitory impacts on the P and L that may be one off or at least unlikely to continue over the extended period of time, and you adjust for that. Magellan's looking pretty inexpensive, I have to say. The share price keeps falling. It's also a reminder, by the way, that when the market decides it doesn't like something, 
Um, trying to stand in the way is not going to turn things around anytime soon. I'm not saying don't buy the shares. I would have happily bought them. We've been on this program before and I've said I would buy Magellan shares at higher prices than this. So you can imagine I'm going to say I think it's a buy now and I will. Um, but you know, just because you like a business doesn't mean the market's going to change its mind anytime soon. The question for investors is, is this worth more in the future than in the past? If you believe the investment talent at Magellan has all of a sudden lost its mojo or somehow the future is going to be meaningfully different from the past, then you want to stay away. If you believe that mean reversion is probably likely and frankly, the people at Magellan probably are still as capable as they've ever been, then 13 times earnings, even on that adjusted number, before you make those adjustments for the one-offs, looks pretty inexpensive to me. So I, I don't get the market's pessimism. Uh, I think it's a, a much better business than the market's giving it credit for. It's probably the best, most accomplished fund manager in the country. Probably not the most diversified one. That probably goes to Pinnacle. Um, but Magellan, I think, is the best fund manager in the country, at least on track record and the talent and quality of people at the helm. Uh, so I'd be buying Magellan at the current price, Andrew. All right, that is a buy. First one off the rank. Mark, um, so in terms of personnel, what are you looking at? Because obviously Hamish Douglas is still there as executive chairman. Plus, you've got those external investments. Um, Scott referred to, obviously, Baron Joey, Joan, uh, Joey uh, also Guzman and Gomez. What are you looking at? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting one. I'm a shareholder, so I'll declare that. And Magellan has been a fantastic wealth winner for Team Invest members. So uh, a lot of our members own it. And the question at the moment, I, we had a discussion yesterday about it, actually. And I, my conclusion was it was absolutely a buy. Uh, yesterday, and I should have bought some more, but I'm a buyer now, so I'll agree with Scott and call it a buyer. This is on a 13 PE, and this is a company that's grown its um, EPS at 31% over the last six years. So it's had a bit of a a down uh, over the last 12 months, which is largely to do with the uh, troubles in China and the, the, the fears that have come up on their significant investments in Alibaba and so on. Now, personally, I wouldn't own the um, uh, the Chinese stocks listed through the Caymans. Personally, that's just a personal view. But overall, that doesn't put put me off uh, Magellan. I think it's very very cheap. It's 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 down. The share price is down half to what it was. But if you look at their their earnings and the fundamentals of the business, it's all green from our point of view. The change in management is not good. We don't like it when <coughs> CEOs go. Um, yeah, and you know, when they, you know, I, I haven't actually even read the announcement, but it doesn't tell you anything. You know, that, it'll probably just say that he's left for personal reasons or or, or to uh, if he's been there for a long time, the CEO leaves. It usually becomes for uh, philanthropic events or stuff like that. Uh, we tend not to like it, but there's there's a very deep bench at Magellan, so they've got a very strong management team. Their funds under management, I think, are over 116 billion now. Uh, my preference is Pinnacle. I, I agree with, uh, but Pinnacle's on a PE of 42. So you can buy Magellan at 13. Um, so it's it's a I think it's a screaming bargain. A screaming bargain. On, All right. On, on, on a five-year outlook. Now, yep. but remember, when I started off, the when we had our initial discussion on the intro, I said I have a positive view about the share markets going forward. So you have to overlay with that. If you think we're all going to go pear-shaped within a year or so, and then we don't buy Magellan because it's not a screaming bargain at 13 PE. But if the market just stays the same or, or strengthens, Magellan will do really well. All right. That is going in the portfolio, Magellan. All right. Now, let's stay in that space. Uh, Premium, ticker code PPS. Dane wants to uh, have a look at this. Uh, In fact, uh, it had that recent uh, proposed uh, takeover uh, from NetWealth. Mark, what are your thoughts? They should have sold. They should have let NetWealth buy it. (laughs) That would have been that would have been in the best interest of shareholders, in my humble opinion. Um, We have actually done quite a lot of work on this company in Team Invest. 
Uh, and I just had a look up before we started and we did uh, the last smart we did, which is a deep review of the company we did in um, October. And uh, it, there was 30, I think, members on the panel and it failed 27 to 3. And the three, so three said yes and 27 said no. And I was just skimming through it. And basically, look, it's not a bad company. It's, it's met our metrics historically, but at the moment, it's return on equity and return on capital are way below 10 percent. Yeah, it's about 6.2 return on, on equity, which fails uh, from our point of view. The reason we were looking at it was we'd passed it in the past a number of years ago. Now, that ended up being a good investment for members who bought it because the share price rocketed up. And the problem is it's on a P of, I think, um, 133. Is that right? So I'll, uh, I'll just check. Yep, I've got it as 133 trailing PE. And their EPS growth rate is running at 24%, but it dropped off in 221. So let's be generous and say that's because of corona and delays on new contracts. So the growth rate's pretty good at 24% over the last six years. But, you know, it's 133 PE. You know, I mean, that's really, really high. And then the effect of that on the business, if they continue operating the way they are now, and I'm not saying it's a bad business, they've got plenty of competition with uh, Hub24 and there's another one too, um, Scott or no. Um, the, the returns we're showing are negative 9% a year on a margin of safety for the next five years if they just continue the way they're going. Or Now, the problem is that'll bring your terminal PE down. That's why it's negative. And the default's 10%. So you've got like negative 10 plus 10 is the range. Uh, I definitely couldn't buy it at anything like this PE. And if I was going to give you, a, if you want to have a buy price on it, if you want a 10% um, return, the buy price would be, uh, 49 cents. Mm. Okay. Well, that tells you something. Yeah. Um, okay. So nothing wrong with the yep. company. Yep. Just, just ridiculously too expensive. And it's not an easy business. And they've got plenty of competition. And they've had a big tailwind with the uh, with the uh, Royal Commissions and the change to the way financial services are being managed and advisors. So this has been very good for them. So I question in five years whether that'll still be there and like what are they going to do? So. Okay. Scott, I can see you nodding in agreement. Yeah, look, I... I I'm not probably as negative as Mark. Uh, I think the the challenges he highlights are absolutely the case. Um, this is a business I think we had we might have had uh, last week another another one in this in this space. I can't remember the name of the company. It was one of the one of the wealth platforms anyway. And the the whole problem was that there was a lot of these guys all trying desperately to take up the same space. Now, in the yeah. best case scenario, they all take a truckload of market share from the incumbent legacy providers like the big banks and that kind of stuff. In the worst case scenario, they fight each other to death. Maybe there's one left standing. Maybe there's not. And acquisitions and mergers have been the, the story of the of the game. One view was taken over last year. Uh, another one, I think, is going ahead reasonably uh, soon. And this one, of course, was knocked back, at least for now, by premium. The fewer players that are the better for everybody, frankly, because it's a scale game. And the quicker you get to scale, the better off. That The only question I have to, to Mark's criticism, which I think is absolutely valid, is if he can keep growing at a reasonable rate and turn some of those uh, top-line sales growth, the customer wins, into profit more quickly than it has in the past or than it's likely to do, there actually could be some value here. So I'm a little less quick to absolutely write it off, but I have to agree with Mark at 130 odd times trailing earnings, you have to believe the future is pretty heroic to be a market beating investment from the current price. And that's the key challenge for everybody involved. I do agree. I think if you were maybe going to get shares in the combined business at the very least from, from some sort of takeover, I think they were offering cash, but you might say together, these businesses have that incremental scale that kind of accrues immediately. And that's one way to start delivering some returns for shareholders more quickly. That makes some sense. Uh, if you like the, the broad idea, I think you're probably better off with the combined entity. 
maybe these guys go on to win. Maybe net wealth falls by the wayside. Maybe hub 24 fall by the wayside. A class was other business I was trying to think of. It, it's, it's a really, really difficult space. It's also possible, as I said, in the long term, they do end up having the lion's share of the market between them. And the new age guys become the way that financial platforms work. The big banks are the losers in this case. And they all make some money. Uh, but if you add up the, the total market opportunities and the total addressable markets and, and the growth potential of all these guys, I, I think it's very hard to believe they all succeed to the degree they want to. So you're in there all picking winners. Will premium beat net wealth? Will net wealth beat class? Will, will class beat hub 24? Um, and so on and so on around the kitchen you go. I don't dislike them. I don't. I think they're doing a good job. They're winning customers. I, I think it probably is a little bit too much to pay now. Um, but I, I probably, if you're a risk, a risk seeking investor or a risk tolerant investor, I think I'd keep on the watch list. If you do start to see profit growth that brings that PE down more quickly or a share price fall to Mark's point that gets you closer to some sort of um, better risk reward scenario, then I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out as a business as Mark says. You just want to find the right price. And these are the sort of businesses that are super volatile. So you may well get the opportunity to buy at a much better price if the market goes in your favor. Yeah, okay. Bottom line, too expensive. Okay, yeah. let's uh, switch to our second stock, Ingham's Group. Ticket code ING, this one coming to us from Talia. And uh, Scott, I noticed it is one of the most shorted stocks on the ASX. Uh, I think a lot of this is due to just those those grain prices which have gone through the roof. Yeah, this and this is talk about talk about a difference between premium, the uh, the online financial platform software business, to uh, the chicken producer. Uh, they don't get much more different on the ASX. This is a real challenge. If you look at the financials alone, Ingham's is trading on five point five times earnings. And you look at that and go, well, even if it was a, you know, if it had some headwinds, even if profit fell by a third or a half, or you're still buying it at a pretty inexpensive price, if those things are true. You mentioned you mentioned grain prices, Andrew. That's a key one. You also got to look at the fact that they are, that they, they profit went up four and a half fold last year compared to the year prior. So again, what do you use as your basis for analysis? If you're using the last year's worth of, of sales and profit, you're like, man, this thing's a steal. If you use the year before that. Then all of a sudden you're back to a PE that's closer to 15 or 16 times, and you got to start to ask yourself, well, you know, what does that then look like? Do I want to pay 16 times earnings for a chicken producer? And given those headwinds, you probably don't. Now there is some elasticity of pricing when it comes to the sale of chickens. I'm not a massive uh, expert in, in the chicken production area, uh, but you know, they, they can probably absorb and pass on some price increases when it comes to grain, because in theory that grain increase is going to impact more than just chicken. But of course, we do know that people do switch proteins really, really quickly. Now, beef is also, by the way, on the rise. So it gives them, as I said, some room to pass on price increases. We've got to eat something protein-wise, at least most of us. And so that that gives them some degree of opportunity, given they tend to be the lowest priced protein. So there's, there's normally an opportunity there. Um, but again, if you think about the, the long-term uh, potential for this business, it's a commodity business. You might get some scale benefit. They are the biggest name in chicken. That helps. Uh, but I just... If I knew it was going to be this this level of profitability forever, I take a swing at five times earnings. And if you do it that enough times, I think you're probably going to come out ahead. But I have to say, there's no clear sign to me they can maintain this year's level of earnings. And then you're in that question of how much is too much. If you have to ask, you're probably too close to the line. So I'd give this one a miss. All right, Mark is chicken on your yeah. Um, I think the other there's one other thing that's a concern from our point of view, and that's the debt level. It's actually got over 1,100 uh, percent debt to equity and i don't understand why that why that is um scott might be able to um uh, illuminate it we have a maximum of 75 percent debt to equity so it fails on debt other than that the numbers all look pretty good now scott made quite a good case there on the earnings have jumped four times in the last year and if you overlay sales on that the sales haven't budged so for some reason ingham has made a lot more money you know through the corona period um 
than you would expect them to have done. So the sales have been pretty flat over the last six years. So that doesn't inspire confidence to say, well, this big spike in earnings is going to stay there. And then as Scott mentioned as well, the, the grain prices, the input costs are all going up and there's significant inflation in those areas. And even if they can successfully pass that on to the, the Coles and the Woolworths and everybody else, and they probably can, it doesn't mean they're going to necessarily make any more money out of it. So um, the debt puts me off and I don't, I don't understand why it's so, uh, why, why it's so high. Um, and uh, it's not worth the effort to go into it because the risk reward there is not really good enough from uh, from my point of view. And I think, if anything, the the current PE and I'm showing it at 3.8 is probably rational because multiplied by that that by four, and then you'd say it's fully priced. All right. In fact, I need to get a, a rating from both of you because it's currently in our portfolio. So, what are you doing with the stock then? Well, I'm definitely not a buyer. So if if if, if I know I'm not. I know, and I wouldn't hold it either because of the debt. So I'm a okay. All right, Scott. Sorry, are you are you holding it or are you avoiding it? Oh dear, I <laughs> I wouldn't have bought it in the first place. Um, <laughs> if you hold it, you probably hold it for a reason that makes some sense as an individual investor. So, am I telling people to rush out and sell their shares? No, uh, but I've got to say, I think I think it is a sell. I, I don't see how you would recommend, given everything else that's available on the market today, I wouldn't buy Ingham shares. If someone holds Ingham shares, I'd say, hey, sell them and buy something better. So I guess that makes it a sell. All right. Well, that means it is falling out of the portfolio. Okay. Number three, Adriatic Metals. We're certainly getting a bit of variety here at the moment. This one coming to us from Sam. Um, Mark, it is UK based. It's exploration development. Um, it's owner of that concession in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Recently released uh, silver assays. Um, how, what are you, how are you looking at this company at the moment? Uh, we wouldn't look at it. Uh, this is pre-revenue or pre-production, really. So they're, they're, they, they've come out with um, you know, good numbers based on their assets they have, but they've actually got to then turn that into a working mine and actually make a profit. So we only because we only invest in companies that are making money, this would be a minimum of four or five years away from possibly appearing on our screens. So uh, I know nothing about the quality of the mine. I had a quick read up of the blurb on it and it sounds good, but they always sound good. So I don't know what the uh, political situation is in Bosnia and uh, Herzegovina, is it? Governor, is it? Herzog, I didn't know where Herzegovina is. I've never heard of that one. Well, next it's obviously Bosnia. near there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, so it looks like they've got good prospects, but it's not something we'd touch because it's just be straight speculation from my point of view. Speculation. Okay, Scott? Yeah, I have to agree with Mark. New viewers won't be surprised, Andrew. You won't. You'll be quite surprised either. I'm not a big fan of commodity companies in general, and pre-revenue commodity companies even more. Uh, if you want to discount back certainty, you start with a profitable commodity producer. You work backwards from there. Uh, you take out profit. You've got revenue only. You take out revenue. You've got something. Hopefully, hopefully, some exploration. Maybe even hopefully some resources and some assets. This is probably akin to the thoughts of looking at a biotech company that might be developing a couple of drugs. Um, they've got a good idea. They've got something they think they might be able to make some money out of. And then you have to go and commercialize it. Now, sometimes they come to nothing because you simply can't commercialize it you know, cheaply enough to make a decent profit on. That's that's probably point one. Point two, maybe you do. And you got to work out how much you want to pay for the level of production and the profit margin you're getting. And again, we don't know that either. So there are so many uncertainties from here. Uh, if you remember probability from high school or uni, uh, you kind of do the probability decision trees, right? And the odds of the odds of the odds of the odds, um, they get smaller every time you go further down the decision tree. So can they can they justify the reserves? Can they deliver uh, production volumes? Can they make sell those volumes at a decent price? 
And then at the price they're selling, what margin do they make? And at that margin, are other shares at good value? If you're going to do all that confidently and with some degree of certainty enough to put your money down, then you're a better person than I am. It's simply unknowable. So look, for, for shareholders, for the company, I hope they're successful. We always hope that these businesses do do well and make a quid. Um, <clears> but you can't you can't reasonably value these companies. At best, you could take a, a, a kind of a, a analytical perspective, a probabilistic perspective, and say, hey, resources of X, if I buy that and I pay this price, maybe possibly the margin might be Y. There's nothing wrong with taking that approach if you want to speculate. But to Mark's point, it is speculation, particularly at a single asset level. If you were going to buy a dozen of these, if you had a track record of being good at being able to convert the potential reserves into some sort of profitability or share price gains, and you did it on a large enough base for the averages get the chance to play out, then this might be something that maybe falls into that decision set. In and of itself, or even without that, am I confident this is one of those winners? I'm really, really not. So I'd have to give it a miss. Okay. Could I just line. add one thing to what yep. Scott said, Andrew? I'll just do, add one thing to that. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with what Scott said. The other thing to consider if you are an investor who likes this area is look at the management. And what you want to see is what their history has been and have they have, do they have a history of successfully building mines and making them profitable? Uh, and if they haven't got that, then don't go near it. And do they? I don't know. <laughs> All right, comes down to that, that point that Scott was making. Life's too short to spend yeah. time on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, too many unknowns. That's, that's what you're both yeah. saying. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Okay, let's move on to our next one, Betmakers Technology Group. Now, it um, recently received approval um, in New York State for a wagering license. Of course, there's been a lot of speculation about whether that was going to happen. Um, sports betting, it's sort of making... It's rapidly progressing in the States. It's sort of been behind Australia in that regard. Uh, Scott, what are your thoughts? This is fascinating, Andrew. There are a whole lot of Australian gambling companies trying to make their fortunes in the US, and it makes perfect sense, right? Their economy is about 15 times the size of ours, give or take, their population roughly the same. So you've got a situation where if you know that it's unusual for an Australian company in, in a developed market to go into the US as a developing market, but we do have a bit of a leg up. Now, that's not to say there aren't some really quality, sophisticated, high-performing betting businesses in the US, but as these markets, state by state by state, all open up, uh, there's lots of opportunities. Blue Bet's in this space trying to do, do well. Um, Betmakers and other businesses, it's basically in a similar type of space. And they're trying to sit themselves between, or largely between, the, the, the sporting bodies themselves, whether they be the racing bodies or the sports bodies, and the, the betting companies, the guys that provide the actual betting services for the consumer. So it's a technology support that sits between those two. I really like that if you're going to have a play in this space because you're not. It's a bit like being an, a, um, a, an insurance broker rather than the insurer themselves, right? You want to clip the ticket on the on the business without taking the financial risk. It makes a heap of sense. So Bet, Betmakers is doing a really nice job of signing up to individual deals with US-based gambling businesses to be that link to provide them with everything up to a white-labeled bookmaking service, frankly. Um, but it's not necessarily usually their license, or at least they're not the, the people bearing the costs or, or making the taking the wins. Now, that minimizes the upside, I suppose, to some degree. If you're a bookie and are good at it, maybe the upside is bigger. If you're a bookie and bad at it, we simply have a bad run of, of outs, um, then you're not going to lose as much money. So I like the picks and shovels approach to what is going to be a booming business in future. The key challenge for us is to work out, a bit like Adriatic, how much this is worth. The good news if you're a shareholder is that sales grew last year at 56%. And I think up till the month of September, they might have even more than doubled, I think, versus the same time last year. So they're getting traction. They're doing deals. They're signing up customers. They're making money. And that's a really positive thing for Betmakers. It shows that they are delivering and getting traction in the market that matters. At the end of the day, promises are everything. Uh, sorry, promises are wonderful, but revenue is everything. And profit is even more than that. The challenge for Betmakers is it hasn't got any of the last one. 
So revenues are great. Revenue growth is really important because it doesn't matter how much money you're making. If your revenue is going backwards, that profit is limited, but at least you can value it. The challenge is this is a $700 million business with not a dollar worth of profit, at least not yet on an impact line. Um, I don't dislike the business. I think it's a smart strategy. They're doing everything right, a bit like we talked about with Magellan earlier, but a very different type of business, same premium. Great business, doing a really good job. Do you want to put your money down for a company that's not making any money yet, especially when it's already valued at $700 million? A bit too rich for me. So um, keeping an eye on it, uh, as and when it turns profitable, one I'll definitely be watching to see if they can turn that revenue growth, firstly, continue it, that, that growth, and secondly, turn it into profit dollars. But for now, I'm going to give it a miss. Okay. Yeah, Marcus, you also point out, this one was uh, brought to our attention by Peter. He also says it's not just New York, it's New Jersey where they're looking to get into it. Just awaiting, I think, regulatory yeah. approval there. So, uh, Mark, what are your thoughts? Um, no, I agree with what Scott said, that it, this is more like a picks and shovel company providing the infrastructure in the betting industry. So I like all that. What I don't like has been their performance. Um, they've been listed since 2015. So we've had six years of reported losses. And they actually got very close to breaking even uh, and having zero loss in 2020. So they were, you know, the, the, the direction was good. At the same time, sales were going down. They picked up lately, you know, which is uh, yeah, the revenue line, which uh, Scott uh, talked about. Um, but they've now dropped down again. And their, their earnings the last 12 months were um, negative 17.5 million loss on 19.5 million in sales. So they're losing nearly a dollar, losing, uh, they're basically, for every dollar they're getting in, they're losing two dollars. That, that that works? <laughs> so it's, um, um, uh, they're losing another dollar on top of that, which is not good. Um, so I don't know when, and the, the, this licensing issue to uh, fixed odds betting, does that mean they're actually going to get into the betting business or is it, because at the moment they're in that nice space where they're providing technology, but they're also providing data on horse racing. In other words, they, they provide um, uh, form on all the horses and so on to, to uh, not to retail punters, this is to the, the betting organisations and the, uh, the promoters. So um, I like that business. I wonder whether they're changing their business, but um, they, they've got to, they're going to have to make a lot more uh, sustainable profits over a long period of time to justify the 700 million market cap, that's for sure. So I think you'd be pretty brave, um, personally. All right, so that's a no from both. No. All right, Mark, um, stock number five, Sigma. Healthcare. Uh, now we did get. Uh, this is coming to us from Evan. Uh, we did get news, of course, yesterday with its update, cutting its underlying earnings expectations for the 22 full year down about 10%. It was hit hard on the market. What's your reaction? Um, well, Sigma's. You know, we, we've sort of, we've talked about Sigma a lot on this program <laughs> over the years, and it's 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 an okay company. They're operating in the pharmaceutical area, which is very low margin. I think Sigma's net profit margin is 2.1%. You know, so that means they're getting you know, $2.10 $2 on every $100 of sales. It's not a lot. Now, that's okay if you're, you have very solid contracts that are very reliable, which they do. So if you look at their cash flow, uh, apart from in 2020 where it dropped down, it's been very consistent. Um, but, I, but we're showing it, its average over the last six years is a negative 9% on EPS growth and sales have gone down by about 3% per year on average. That's the average combined over that whole period, which is not exactly inspiring. Um, the PE is very low, so it's the bottom of the green for us. So it hasn't been, uh, it's right down, I'm showing it at 6.5, that would have been yesterday. Um, and before, and they've said so they've just had a further drop because they've come out with a, uh, a profit warning. Um, look, it's not, it's, not bad, it's not a bad company. Uh, the range I have is on our default settings 
um, if they continue averaging what they've done over the next five years, you could get about 14% a year total return with dividends. But if I put a margin of safety on it, which then just takes it, you know, it tweaks it down based on its, its area of lesser performance over the period, it's now negative 8%. So it's a big range. So that's nearly, that's 27% um, range, you know, on, on, uh, from good to bad. But it's not bad. I, I wouldn't buy it. It's just not exciting enough for me. It's about half a billion uh, market cap. It's the kind of business, if you can buy it really, really well, and you, you, Scott may argue that it is really, really low at the moment. It's <laughs> the bottom of the green of the P-E ratio. Um, then, you know, then you can you can get a healthy return. But what we're showing, to get a 10% return on a margin of safety, uh, you'd have to buy it at um, uh, 20 cents. And it's currently, well, I'm not sure what it is today, but 49 yesterday. Mm. Okay, well, that tells you something. Um, Scott, your view? This is a tough one, Andrew. I, 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 I will say for, for what Mark said, yes, it's absolutely low and it's cheap, and that's, that's better than buying it at a higher price. Uh, the flip side, of course, is the company has downgraded its own earnings forecast. I used to work for Blackboard's, the, the vitamin company, so I know a little bit about this sector, uh, at least as a, as a potential supplier or then supplier to the area. The challenge for the pharmaceutical wholesale business in Australia is there's too many of them. There are three major wholesalers. I don't know what the count is now, but they used to have tens of warehouses around Australia combined because they all have this community service obligation that requires them on, to, to, on receipt of money from the government to be able to deliver to almost any pharmacy in the country within 24 hours, which is wonderful for us as, as pharmacy consumers. Love it. Uh, great to know that whatever our health concerns or complaints, when the doctor makes a prescription, um, at least on PBS medicines, you can get it within 24 hours, which is fantastic. We love it. The problem, unfortunately, is to do that, you need to have an infrastructure base, warehouses and the like that simply aren't, well, they're, they're subscale. They're not making enough money. So you've got too many players, too many warehouses, and there's not enough money to go around. It's why the chemist warehouse business is always so hotly contested because it literally is the difference for many of them between, if not profit and loss, at least more profit and, and meaningfully less profit. And that's one contract. And again, who gets the business? Well, chemist warehouse gets the very, very best price because they're all desperate for it. Um, they get the deal. Uh, the other guys get some volume recovery, which probably is break even at best, but helps pay for the overheads. And the guys who don't get that business end up having to cop lower overheads and therefore, sorry, higher overheads, lower overhead recovery. Um, and so therefore, even less profit for those. So it's just a really, really structurally challenged industry. And on that basis, I just really can't recommend shares in Sigma. It's a company that, look, it's, you know, it's reasonably well run. It's doing its best. Um, sometimes you get business like airlines. You get businesses that are even at, even when run at their best. If you're stuck with overcapacity in the industry, really, really, really hard for anyone to make too much money, if any at all. Um, I think this is a space I don't want to be in. It may be interesting to see what happens when API is bought by other West Farmers or Woolies, at least based on the current deals being done. Um, it may make things worse or better for Sigma. It's hard to really know. It depends how they run that business. Woolies and Coles, although West Farmers isn't part of Coles and part of West Farmers anymore. Woolies and Coles have for years coveted pharmacy in store. The Pharmacy Guild of Australia is a remarkably powerful lobbying group. They've stalled that for 25 plus years. Um, but the big guys really, really want this. What they do to API in terms of where they make it keener in terms of price competition, where they roll it into their current infrastructure, really hard to know the impact on Sigma. But just too many obstacles, too much risk for me. Even at this lower price, I'd give it a miss. All right, that is a no. All right, that's our first five. Let's uh, summarise where we've been. We began, in fact, with our stock of the day, Magellan Financial Group. Um, Scott's saying, hard to know what's going on behind the scenes there with uh, the chief executive having resigned, although he's saying it is, 
inexpensive. It is a buy, and Mark's saying he already owns it, um, and he calls it a screaming bargain. So it goes into the portfolio. Uh, premium in the same space. Um, and uh, Mark's saying it's uh, ridiculously expensive as opposed to what we saw with, uh, with Magellan there. Um, Scott's saying there could be value there, but uh, it's a no from both of them at this point. Uh, Ingham's Group, Chicken, uh, as I pointed out, one of the most shorted stocks on the ASX. Uh, Scott's saying it looks expensive, uh, although it has the capacity to pass on some of those rising prices we've seen with those high grain costs. Mark is concerned with those debt levels at the moment. Uh, it is a sell from Scott, no from Mark. It's actually falling out of the portfolio. Adriatic Metals, um, Mark, he's not interested. Uh, he only invests in companies that, uh, <laughs> that make money. Uh, he's saying it may take four to five years before it actually gets going, so it is very speculative. Scott, um, just saying there are too many questions at the moment, so that is pretty much an avoid. Betmakers Technology has recently approved some regulatory, um, well, it's got the regulatory tick of approval, certainly in New York State. And um, Scott's saying, yeah, look, it certainly um, looks, uh, looks positive, but uh, no profit at this point, perhaps too expensive. Uh, and Mark's not particularly impressed with the performance to date. So that is a no. And finally, Sigma Healthcare there, which we just did. And uh, in fact, that was a no from both of them. All right, let's uh, catch up with where we're at as far as our portfolio is concerned, because we do have our own uh, tracking since July 1st last year, thanks to our partner NABTRADE. All stocks that get two thumbs up or a buy from both of our experts on the show goes into the portfolio, as we saw with Magellan. If that stock's already in the portfolio, it comes up again and receives a unanimous hold from both guests it stays in the portfolio. So let's uh, get a check up to see how it is performing weekly. We're down 0.87 of a percent uh, on the month, slipping down 3.2%. Of course, we've seen the broader market struggle in recent weeks. Year to date, since July 1st, 2021, we're close to 5.5% higher. Since its inception, July 1 last year, we're up 43.5%. Taking a look at those stocks we've recently added, uh, Genworth Mortgage Insurance, Adore Beauty, Hub24, PTP Group, and Top Shelf International. Stocks removed, Atomos, BAPCOR, having its uh, problems also with personnel at the top, Harvey Norman, and Southern Cross Media. And you can check in all those stocks. And ETFs we have in the calls portfolio by heading to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. We'll be updating that every day here on the call with how it's tracking. Think having an SMSF is hard? Well, think again. Set up your own SMSF completely online with Stake Super and invest your super with freedom. There's no paperwork and Stake does all the admin. You just focus on the investing. All right, let's move to our sixth stock. It is Cromwell Property Group. This one coming to us from, uh, from Henry. And uh, Scott, it is, uh, I think it recently faced a boardroom battle, in fact. Uh, it's, uh, it has struggled recently. I think share price dropping some 70% over the past three years. What are your thoughts? 
challenge at the moment when it comes to analysing these businesses and what's likely to happen in future. Um, I was on the call last Thursday and we talked a lot about the impact of um, the, the, the straight out the, the property impact or the, the, the kind of COVID impact when it comes to other other businesses like retailers and others. Properties are really, really huge unknown for me right now. We simply don't know what the future looks like. On one hand, you have lots and lots of people buying a whole lot of stuff from a whole lot of warehouses. So you want to jump into a Goodman or something and get a massive warehouse exposure as Amazon and Hogan and others continue to expand. I own both those companies for the record. Um, as they continue to expand and grow and they need more space, the bulky goods retailers, the, the homewares mobs, if they continue to grow, that'll be great. On the flip side, if that happens, and we all stay at home and work from home, then you don't want to own office uh, office real estate in particular, and even residential real estate. Where are people going to live? Where are we going to build? Um, what does population do in terms of the, the lack of immigration right now? So many different moving moving parts. On the other hand, the flip side could also be true. In six months' time, we're back at work like nothing changed. Um, you know, office blocks are full of people. Tendencies back to 99%, and the the hopes for bulky goods retail go by the wayside as we all go back to businesses as it was in 2019. If you don't know the answer to that, it makes it really, really hard to invest, particularly given the current price of some of these assets. Now, Cromwell's a tough one. It's trading currently at 10.5 times earnings. It's carrying an 8.3% distribution. Now, it's not Frank, it's the property trust, of course, but you know that's a, that's a pretty nice starting point. If you're an income investor saying, hang on, 8.3%, I'm getting 0.1% in the bank. Um, maybe I want to have another look, and I don't blame people for wanting to have a look at this one. It's, it's diversified, diversified by geography, diversified by sector, so that's really positive. I wouldn't, if I was going to play real estate, this would be one I would definitely be considering because it does have that diversification. If you, if you're like familiar with commodities, you know, if you wanted to get into commodities, I, I, I do the old, as I say, get the band back together and buy BHP and South 32, put the old BHP together and get a really diversified commodity business. The flip side, of course, you don't have to do that. Why, why do it if you don't want to or don't need to or, or can't justify it? That's kind of how I feel about Cromwell. Um, seems reasonably inexpensive. The dividend looks pretty good. The distribution looks pretty good. So I don't find anything to hate about it, but in a future where some or many of its assets are permanently impaired in terms of their income generating capacity, either because of vacancies or because they have to lower the rents meaningfully to keep them full, um, it's just really hard to know what happens from here. The challenge with property companies generally is the upside is not huge because they're making a return on the assets they already own. Therefore, you rely on either development profits or rental growth for the upside. On the downside, you have potentially um, lack of tenancy, lack of lack of rental, which brings values down, brings down the capitalization rate, uh, brings down the brings down the rental. So you kind of got not much upside and potentially some meaningful downside. That makes real estate trust really hard for me to invest in. I don't think I'd sell it if I owned it. Um, if you're there for income, I get why you have it as part of a diversified portfolio, but I wouldn't be buying it to beat the market. Okay, so potentially a hold. Mark, your thoughts? All of that. Uh, yeah, I think Scott uh, explained that very well. They also have quite a, a sub-10 return on equity and return on capital, which, by the way, is not uncommon with uh, real estate trusts. And it's one of the reasons we tend not to look at them. Um, and I think the, the dividend is the high point of it. Uh, I agree with the risks. I think because the, the way the cap rate works is if rents go down, the cap rate comes down, which means it's a leverage drop in the value of the properties they own, which... So on the way up, it's great. On the way down, it's really bad, you know, from a shareholding point of view. So I think there's more risk there than upside. I totally agree with Scott. So for me, I would be just a straight pass and too hard, too complicated. Yeah, okay. And not my expertise. Yeah. All right, too much risk. Uh, okay, to our next one, Parenti Global. This one coming to us from Christopher. Uh, it is the Mining Services Group. Uh, had a challenging first half of the year, then recovered. Mark? Uh, this is the old Aus, Aus drill business. 
Uh, I used to be a shareholder in uh, Oz Drill when I was young and naive. And uh, it, it's, it, it is in the mining services area, so it, it provides drilling and blasting uh, as a contractor to miners and so on. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure it does a lot more than that, but that's, that's fundamentally what it does. Um, they've had a history of really not doing that well. They sort of do, they get, you know, things look a little bit encouraging and then something happens. So we're showing the EPS growth rate over the last six years growing at 6.4%. But not that's not with not very stable though, which is not good. And the sales have been growing at 4.5 percent. Now that's that's in light of the fact that remember the the mining area over the last six years, you'd have to say we've it's 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 been in boom time, yeah, particularly uh, iron and the metals and so on, which is uses an enormous amount of the Oz, Oz drill or the uh, P P um, the PRN uh, type type of product. So they don't seem to have been able to convert that into profitable business would be my observation. Um, our default return on it's quite high, but it fails on safety for us um, in that, uh, sorry, fails on stability because it's below our minimum, fails on return on equity and so on. What else does it fail on? So it fails on quite a few areas. So it's not a company team invest would be, um, would be interested in. And I have bad memories of the company before they changed their name. All right, I'm taking that as a big no then. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay, Scott. In fact, this one coming to us from Henry. He wants to know. Well, obviously, if it's a it's a buy or a hold or a sell, uh, and he wants to know also how these contract miners like Perendi stack up with investments with inflation risk and commodity prices compared to those owner operators. Uh, Mate, let's the first the, the second question first because it's easy one and it gives me a bit of a break because Mark made a perfect case. So rather than me straight up saying what Mark said, I'll say that later. Um, the challenge with any of these businesses is inflation prediction is really really important, but you've got to choose quality first. So even if it was the case that these sorts of businesses were attractive businesses as inflation hedges, you would only do it if the business itself was attractive. You could you can lose money uh, in an inflation hedge category if you like, if you want to call it that. Uh, if you're right, if you buy the wrong business, or you lose money overall if they go broke, right? So just because it might lend itself to the attributes of a type of business that might give you some inflation protection, you want to buy quality first. I'd rather buy a a quality growing profitable business at a decent price. Uh, with a little less inflation protection than one that at least at a headline level was, hey, this is the great anti-inflation stock or anti-inflation category if the company can't get it done. And I've got to say with, with Parenti, here's the challenge. I just pull up the, the, the statutory numbers for the last of this, sorry, the first half of this year. Um, they did a billion dollars in revenue and managed to lose $64 million in profit. Now, I get why. It's a very, very capital intensive business. I know there's lots of changes going on. It's a really tough business to run. But this is the, I think this is the worry for investors. If you look at the historical financials, it's trading on 5.5 times earnings, I think it is, um, 5.7. You kind of go, well, hang on, how can you not, how can you, how can you lose money doing that? The last annual financials are pretty good. The earnings are actually reasonably stable, at least on a full year basis. But those numbers are telling you there's something different going on with the company. And I think that's the real challenge for all things that you mentioned and Mark's mentioned in terms of where it should be an opportunity for Parenti. Um, the fact they weren't able to deliver profitable growth during that period probably tells you something that uh, maybe it's worth it's worth knowing. Now, to be fair, Freddie had a lot of one-off uh, write-downs. It did make that a loss-making business, but even at um, even at adjusting for everything in terms of those costs that they took back out again, their their net profit margin is only four percent. Now, that's a that's good if you're a supermarket retailer with super stable earnings. Uh, well, I say it's good, it's not great, but it's you know it's reasonable for a supermarket operator. If you're a mining services operator with massive amounts of capital equipment, uh, people, staff, uh, contracts, all that kind of stuff, you'd want to be making more than four cents in the dollar. So for me. 
you know, is an inflation hedge. I think I don't think it qualifies because it doesn't qualify on the quality scale, at least until and unless it continues to deliver really strong earnings growth. You can you know get a sense that this is here to stay. They've nailed the operational requirements. There is not a lot of volatility in the business. Mm. I think all those things are unlikely to be true. If you're in that situation, then you don't want to be buying a subpar business for inflation protection because you might. Even if their pricing is okay, if they can turn a dollar, it's not going to help you beat inflation. All right. Would you hold it or sell it? Uh, I think I'd sell it, mate. I think I'd sell it. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Let's move to Milk, uh, New Zealand's Fonterra. Uh, this one coming to us from Gabby. And uh, Scott, uh, there's been wilk, uh, weaker milk production. That's due to poorer weather or that. That situation appears to have turned around there. That, uh, but Fonterra's milk supply down about 3%, I think, in the same time last uh, last season has lifted its milk payment to farmers this season um how do you see this this is a challenging one andrew because it's 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 a structure invented by investment bankers which is generally your first your first flag um the fonterra the fonterra farmers who were part of the co-op wanted some opportunity to cash out their ownership of the business without turning it from a co-op into a listed company for all the reasons that you might expect what the what they did decided to do was create a shareholders fund which gets an income stream from the co-op and allows people to basically hand off their ownership interest or their, their economic interest, I should say, in the company without handing over the ownership control to the shareholders of the fund. So it's a really strange structure. It's actually quite clever. If you're, if you're one of those selling farmers, it's a fantastic structure. Um, so while I, while I sound like I was bagging the investment bankers, I've done exactly what the, the owners wanted, which is give us control, but let us sell the economic interest. So perfect, I've done a really good job. But if you're buying that, what are you actually buying? Now, it's fair to say as you're a retail shareholder, if I own three shares of Woolies, um, I, I, I officially have, have voting rights, but they're not worth much. So is it really that different to owning uh, shares in the Frontera Shareholders Fund? Not really, at least not at, not at, not at an individual level, right? Because my influence on the business, even though I officially have voting rights, is pretty small. If I own three units in Frontera, I have a slightly less voting control, but they still round to zero in both cases. Um, so, you know, there is there is something to say, let's be pragmatic about it rather than be particularly ideological or, or particularly kind of, you know, um, straight up and down on, on what this means. The challenge, I think, is the problem is you, you're kind of getting that income stream without the upside of the equity value. So, yes, the equity value can to some degree be shown in the in the price of the, the fund units themselves. But this is literally just capitalizing the value of, of the production. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a pure economic investment because you're you're capitalizing a cash flow which is fine um the downside of course is if you're all that's all you're getting it's almost like getting a bank hybrid you've got the downside of of not owning equity you've got the downside of of you know not not having the franking credits when it comes to a lot of those hybrid distributions for example so you're kind of in the best of both worlds i'm oh, sorry the worst of both worlds i should say and i think that's something like what you're getting with frontera um, i don't hate it 5.3 percent yield again a bit like um a bit like cromwell i can imagine why you might want that as part of a diversified portfolio if you've got 60, 70, 80% banks, I'd happily say, you know what, sell some of those and buy something else, maybe even like Fonterra. Uh, but I can't see it being a market beating investment almost by definition, yep. um, unless that unless that income is likely to grow over time. And as you say, the commodity business of milk is unlikely to give you really long-term compound market growth. So this is purely an income play, not attractive enough for me to beat the market with, so I'd sell it if I owned it. Okay, all right, Mark, uh, running a bit short of time. So your thoughts? Yeah, no, I'd agree with all of that. And I actually don't think it's an appropriate product for uh, retail investors because you can't value it anyway because it, it doesn't show any return on equity or return on capital, stability of earnings. It's nothing like that. So you're sort of, you're going, you're buying and it was set up, as Scott said, for the farmers and that makes total sense. So I don't see why anyone would want to buy this because there's no way of knowing what a fair price is in my view. Okay, 
So would you hold it or you'd sell it? No, no. Yep, okay, all right. Let's move to our ninth stock, Mass Group Holdings. And Mohammed wanting to know about this uh, mark. It's a Dubbo-based business. I think it was actually founded by Westmass, the ex-NRL player, uh, independent uh, construction materials equipment services provider. Uh, so it's uh, sorry, wrong one, Mass. Uh, MGH, sorry, <laughs> wrong code. <laughs> MGH. Yeah, got well, it. If you want to have a think yes. about that, we'll come back to Scott. Your thoughts? Yep. Yeah, look, I think Mass is a really interesting business. I, I'm instinctively drawn to companies that are founded outside the capital cities that are kind of have grown by being just good at what they're doing. And to some degree, if you look, think about those second tier, we mentioned Betmakers before. There's a company called Bluebet, which is actually staying out of New York and New Jersey, looking for second tier states where they can actually have a play in the less crowded field. And I quite like the idea of Mass doing exactly the same thing, right? If you're in, if you're in you know, regional New South Wales, regional Australia, your chance of actually finding good opportunities that the big boys miss is actually meaningfully higher and you can probably charge better prices because you're the local person you've got equipment in the right places you know the you know the um the, the partnerships you've probably got a good reputation in the bush i assume um so that's a really good thing and as a business i, I quite like that if you think about your know, heuristics to say how do I, am i likely to like this those things are good starts the challenge i think is this is a really capital intensive business they're relying on utilizing large amounts of machinery and people on a regular basis to make this work they have got a really nice pipeline by the way of growth potential, and the share price is doing really well. So I, I don't, I don't find, I can't find much to dislike about the business itself. The challenge is on my numbers, it's trading at 33%. And you've got to grow, if you're a construction business and you're super capital intensive, imagine what you've got to do in terms of outlay to get the sort of growth you need to justify a PE of 33. Now, maybe it's possible, it probably is. Um, and again, I, I, would back, I would back the guys in a less competitive market who know the area, who are getting it done, those are really positive attributes. So I, I, I cautiously say I would give this one a miss. Um, if you held it 33 times only, I'm still not sure you can necessarily buy it. The one um, the one thing to keep in, in mind is it managed to deliver 24% underlying EBITDA or operating profit growth over the last 12 months. So part of that PE is in that number. But again, if you're if you're relying on the projects, the contracts, and the equipment, it's it's a really really tough economic engine to drive. Compared to software, where you can sell more. <laughs> Of the same thing, you have to do double the development. You can just roll it out. So, uh, okay, I'd, I'd hesitate to sell it, but I'd say a hold for mass. A hold. Okay. All right, Mark. I know you haven't been prepared on this one, so you can make it quick. Oh no, I was. I just I just <laughs> typed in the wrong code. That was right. All. <laughs> no, so basically, the problem with it is it's um, it's only been going for one year. The area is notoriously difficult to make money in for the reasons that Scott mentioned, and there's it's also very hard to do it consistently. So they, you know, you have good periods, and don't forget, it's only been listed for a year, or it's one full year. So those numbers that they've done, a lot of that comes to how you set it up and what you put to the market. So they, so I'm not saying they've cooked the books. I'm just saying though, they, they may, it may have been they wanted to make sure they had a good year for where, what they started off with on how they priced it. So uh, it's too early for my point of view to say anything intelligent about it. All right. Too early. Okay, let's uh, finish with Adairs. Uh, of course, the home furnishings company uh, recently acquired Focus on Furniture. The market liked that. Mark, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, it's, Adairs is a good retailer. It looks good on all our uh, metrics. We're showing it returning 28% a year compound if it continues on its current traje trajectory and on a margin of safety 15%. Now, by the way, this is fairly typical of the good retailers. So the good retailers are um, JB Hi-Fi, AX1, Nick Scarly. I put them in the same category as them. Uh, they're about a half a bill market cap. 
Um, their um, uh, EPS growth rate is running at about 19%, which is very good. So, I mean, pretty similar to the, the, the good players in this area. Retail for Team Invest has been uh, outstanding for us over the last six years, you know, as far as returns, because the, the PEs generally have been much lower than other all the other areas of the market. Uh, Adairs is on a nine times trailing earnings. So it's still very low, and that's quite quite a lot lower than uh, I think AX1 and JB Hi-Fi and so on at the moment. So I'll put it as a buy. All right. That's good news uh, for uh, Adairs. Scott, what do you think? I'll keep it brief, man. I know we're pushed for time. I own shares in Adairs. I like Adairs. Uh, Mark's own numbers, 19% growth, and you're paying nine times earnings for that retailer. Um, you've got to believe a lot goes wrong before you make money buying a retailer at this price way. I've owned shares for a little bit of time, not actually that long. We bought them relatively recently. It just looks too cheap to ignore. They're not going to get the same level of growth next year, I don't think, as they got last year because of the COVID impact. So we should adjust a little bit. I don't want to create false expectations for people about what they can keep doing. But online sales grew at 94% last year. They bought a couple of businesses, as you say, Mocker and Focus on Furniture. Um, I just think it's a, it's, it's a very good retailer, uh, trading at a... a, a frankly, a crazy silly price. Um, doesn't make it necessarily a slam dunk. Lots of things can go wrong. Um, but I, I don't know how you go, you go too far wrong. Buying it as a, a 9PE nine, nine, nine and a yield of 6.3%. Even if those numbers moderate with lower profits in future, they're on a good base. I think they'll keep growing for years. Okay, we, we finished with a buy. Fantastic. In fact, it's going in the portfolio. That's Adairs. Guys, you've done well. Scott, Motley Fool, Mark, Team Invest, thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. Thanks, Thank Andrew. you. My pleasure. All right, let's just summarise where we've been over the past half hour then. Cromwell property, uh, that was a hold from Scott, uh, but, but a lot of unknowns there to consider. Mark uh, he doesn't sort of look at property trust at this point, so it's a no. Uh, just as far as the next one, we've got a Parenti Group, the Mining Services Group, it's a no from Mark and a sell from Scott. Fonterra Milk, the Kiwi company, um, it's a sell from both, so that tells you the story from Frontier. Mass Group, finally, the one based in Dubbo in western New South Wales. Uh, Scott likes it as a business, but a bit too capital intensive. Uh, Mark says it's difficult to make money. It's just too early for the company. It is a no from both of them. As, as I said, we finished with a buy going in the portfolio. Adairs, we've done well. All right. Any stocks uh, you'd like to cover, you can flick us an email, the call at osbiz.com.au or tweet us at osbiz. TV and a reminder where to find all the stocks we have in the quartz, uh, the calls portfolio. You can head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.